Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I have a very simple concept today that I think is basic to everything. And I think it's the, the fact that we can extract from the Bible one particular thing about human beings. If you had to say what is the anthropological fact that we can understand about humans from the Bible, and I think it's true both in terms of the fall of human beings and redemption, it's an understanding we just sort of know by common observation. I'm not going to tell you about it this morning, but actually recent brain science has also indicated this is true. And that is that we are human by imitation. Human goodness and human evil is the result of imitation. This is the continual refrain of the Old Testament. You know, it's description of the various kings in especially describing their imitation of evil, Second Chronicles. Manasseh did what was evil in the Lord's sight imitating the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. Second Chronicles 36:14. All the leaders of the priests and the people multiplied their unfaithful deeds, imitating all the detestable practices of the nations, and they defiled the Lord's temple. In biblical terms, then, we could say that damnation is a result of imitation of evil. And salvation, many verses, is going to say, is imitation of Christ. This is 3 John. Let me read a series of these passages. 3 John 1.11, it says both things. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. The idea, if you see God, you imitate God. 1 Corinthians, and this is, we've studied this, be imitators of me, 11.1, as I am of Christ, Paul says. 1 Thessalonians 2.14, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Suffering is going to play a key role in our imitation of Christ. Hebrews 13, 7, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. I've got a series of these, but I won't read all of them. In fact, we could... Just passages that just say, imitate, do this. And you could expand upon that. The concept is throughout the the New Testament. So imitation, though, in the negative, gives rise, I think, to the peculiar forms of jealousy and desire experienced by humans that we don't find in the animal kingdom. Multiple people wanting the same object, the same thing, gives rise to violence and competition, right? Every jealous child would hit the other child over the head to get their toy. They would bring down the world to get what they want. And so 
it is true in brain science, but we can just see it in human beings, the near absolute role of what we would call the mimetic or imitation. And there's no instinctual breaks. I've been watching the British nature shows and they show the great ape societies that are very human-like. You've got the adolescent apes and they kind of are the troublemakers. And, but in all of this, there is a kind of instinctual limit that's put on the younger gorillas are subject to the alpha males. But for humans, there's just no limit to human destructiveness. And I think this is just sort of built into even children. As an adult, though, given no subordination to superiors, there's no limit to the murderous instinct. And this then gives rise, this is the Rene Girard, he says, yeah, that uh, this is what happens in cultures, that as people all want the same thing, they turn on one another in violence, and then they scapegoat someone, and this gives rise to sacrificial religion, human sacrifice. And this is recorded again and again in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 6.3. Ahaz walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even made his son pass through the fire. He killed him. He sacrificed it. Imitating the detestable practices of the nations, the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. And so what it means to be human in both its deepest, most profound evil, but I think in the greatest good, is that we imitate and freedom. We're not subject to instinct. The bees and the birds, they all do what they do and it's wonderful what they do, but they're guided by instinct. But with human beings, I think the thing that gives us freedom and that can destroy that freedom is our imitation of others. That is, we're dependent upon it. Deuteronomy 12.30 says, take care so that you are not ensnared into imitating them after they're being destroyed from before you and so that you not inquire concerning their gods saying how do these nations serve their gods and thus I myself want to do so also. Mimetic religion, that is people imitate in religion. Now this concept is actually basic to the concept of imitatio Dei, imitating God in Judaism, in the Old Testament, is derived from the concept of Imago Dei, that is, that we're made in the image of God. The original image of God includes the idea in the Trinity, that the work of the Son, it reflects the Father, and this is enacted by the Spirit. Reflection, the idea of a shared understanding, or in the creation of Adam and Eve, that there's a plurality, they're not in the image of God as an individual, but as a plurality, and they understand who they are through the eyes of God. And so the image of God shared with humans simultaneously includes the capacity, two things, the imitation and the necessary presence of God, right? That's what was presumed. So when we say that we are human by imitation, that humanness originally depended upon God as the model to be mirrored. In the Old Testament, people are commanded to take on the virtues of God. Be holy, God says, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And this is the anthropomorphism, God appearing in human form 
is partly, we think, that there is God modeling what people should be like. Jews are, in the Jewish rabbinic teaching, they're told to perform acts like God did. Even the burial of Moses, you know, it says that God buried Moses. And they said, well, I guess we should bury people. Visiting the sick, they say, God visited Abraham. The Talmud states, as he is merciful, so you be merciful. And of course, this is repeated in the New Testament. The disciple is said, Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We're to imitate God. Luke 6, 36, be merciful just as your father is merciful. The idea of imitation, I believe, explains the movement of the fall, the first Adam, displaces God as the model and Adam becomes the model and then salvation the second Adam Christ becomes the model Adam had been created it says in Genesis in the image of God but if you turn over to Genesis 5 3 it says that Adam had a son in his own likeness in his own image and this is following this logic. I think this is what Paul is accounting for in Romans 1.18. I think he's just telling the early chapters of Genesis. That is that the capacity to imitate God turned into the desire to take the place of God. And Paul describes it as the turn to the human self-image. Look at Romans 1.21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, they became futile in their speculations and their futile heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form, and here's the shift, they're using a different model in the form of corruptible man. They became their own model instead of God as the model. And birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Here's the beginnings of idolatry. In idolatry, people become their own model or they create their own image. They become image makers. Instead of God being the creator of us in his image, we become the creator of ourselves and create an idolatrous religion. What can it mean that it's a kind of caving in that we become our own model? This is it's Kierkegaard's statement, the self relating to itself in the relation. The caving in of the individual. This is, I think, the explanation for the shame, the hiding, that people are inadequate in and of themselves. And even the deployment of language shows that Adam, in the beginning, he named the animals, he had a connectedness to the world. And then, you've heard me say this, that the, the word appears for the first time, he says, I... I ran, I hid, I was afraid, I was naked. In the first sentence Adam speaks, he uses that word four times. It had never appeared before in the Bible. So there's shame, alienation, all of this, I think, is an imitation, a failed model. And taking the place of the other, this is what's happening, right, with Cain and Abel. Cain would take the place of Abel. He slays Abel in a twisted bid to take his place before God. That is, he's imitating him, but he's jealous of him. He would displace him. And this becomes an epidemic of violence. The next character to appear, do you know about Lamech? 
Lamech is a kind of artist of a very peculiar kind. He's a killer. He likes killing people. And he writes poetry about his killing. He says, Ada and Zillah have killed me, a young man, a young man I have wounded. Some people actually are saying, oh, he's actually killed two people. And he writes this beautiful poem for his two wives, describing how he's murdered them. And it seems that Lamech is at the head, then. He's kind of representative of the race of Noah, right? They all become killers. They're sociopathic killers that even God can't redeem. And that, of course, is the story of the flood and then Babel. Is Babel an improvement, I guess, in some way over the generation of Noah? There's the confusion of languages. And it's interesting what proceeds. Idolatry appears for the first time in our Bible after Babel and also the rise of homosexuality. It seems to inaugurate a different symbolic universe. And so where Noah's generation, they had been sociopathic killers, got different problems. Tribalism, organized violence, and rampant idolatry. It's everywhere. Even in the household of Abraham, who's the next character, you know, chapter 11 is Babel, chapter 12 is Abraham. And Abraham's father, the Midrash tells us, that Abraham's father was actually an idol maker. He carved out idols. That was his business. I think that the, the life story of Abraham is at each step a kind of counter to this mimetic idolatry of the Babylonians. They would storm the heavens while God speaks to Abraham on earth, that God becomes once again the model. They would make a name for themselves, it says in Genesis 11, and God says to Abraham, I will make your name great. They would engineer their own salvation. They're great engineers, by the way. They can stack bricks better than anybody ever stacked a brick. And they imagine they can storm the heavens. But Abraham is completely dependent upon God, or that's the lesson that he learns with the reality that he departs from his people, his tribe. They refuse to be scattered from the land. That was the command, scatter out and fill the earth. And they say, well, no, we'll, we'll gather right here on this plain and build a tower and create a society. And so the slow extraction of Abraham from this mimetic religion I think that's just his life course, and this is important to us because Abraham is the prototype of the faith that is there in Christ. His departure from his country, his father's house. It's a departure from potential models, right? These people are not to be your models. Everything familiar was to be left behind, including the idolatrous religion of his father. And Abraham then hears the voice of God, I think, the one person that Abraham imitates is Melchizedek. Melchizedek calls God Yahweh, the Lord Most High, creator of heaven and earth. That exact phrase will be picked up by Abraham. So it's not as if Abraham is without a model, but Melchizedek, this strange figure that the Hebrew writer is going to say is a type of Christ, becomes the model for Abraham. And there is this sense then that God is providing an alternative model for Abraham. The identity of God as the source of life. You know, what's the key point? This may sound sort of mundane, but it's the circumcision. What, why circumcision? It's kind of an odd thing. 
The sign is the sign that marks the flesh of Abraham with the name of God in Jewish understanding. Genesis 17, when he establishes this covenant, that's the point when Abraham turns definitively to worshiping God. Even Abraham's household, we find idols. But at that point, it says, well, I'm going to worship God. He's going to be my model. So where mimetic desire, I believe, is the pursuit of wholeness where it cannot be found, the pursuit of life where it cannot be found, circumcision renders the body fragmented, incomplete. That's the point, right? I'm not complete in myself. I cannot make my name great. I can't even provide offspring for myself, but I depend upon God to do that. He will give completeness. And this then is a different order of desire. In other words, God is modeled. That's a very different sort of model. The culmination, his non-sacrifice of Isaac. I think that Abraham's being called out of a religion where human sacrifice is practiced. The sacrifice of the other so as to obtain life. Not a lot is said. Think of the story, Abraham taking Isaac up the mountain. Isaac says, well, dad, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham's answer, well, son, God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Isaac doesn't know who the lamb is yet. And of course, the story, it's not really that Isaac's going to be sacrificed, but Isaac is a kind of type of Christ. And the allusion is not simply to the ram, you know, Abraham finds a ram. It's an allusion to Christ. As Rene Girard puts it, God in this sense will give the one who will sacrifice himself in order to do away with all sacrificial violence. I believe that's the significance of the story of Abraham. Here is the end of human sacrifice, where imitation causes violence and sacrificial religion. Imitating Christ is going to reverse this sort of mimetic desire. And so Abraham's journey from what was probably a human religion of sacrifice, human sacrifice, it involves the turn from presuming life is within our capacity or our power to produce it. I mean, in a sense, this is the story in chapter 4, that the way that Paul retells the story, he says that Abraham accepts his own mortality. He was as good as dead. He was more than 100 years old, and Sarah's womb was dead, and they were completely dependent upon God. They were not going to reproduce themselves. They were not going to gain life for themselves. And I think our imitation, as we have it outside of Christ, is one in which we would grab the gusto. We would grab the life. And of course, that's the basic negative emotions. Shame. Because whatever we grab, whatever object we have, proves not to be able to sustain us. Jealousy. I want what you have because you seem to be more complete than me. You seem to hold together, you know. There's a superiority. That's always true, right, in the other. Why are we jealous? Have you ever thought of the kind of the genealogy of jealousy? Because we imagine the other has something. And what is it that they have? Being, life, substance. But with the faith of Abraham made complete and available. In other words, it's completed in Christ. 
the sacrificial violence is undone. Ephesians 5.1, therefore, this is the significance, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Rivalry, jealousy, violence are displaced by hope, love, peace, the saving imitation of Christ. Now I'm going to conclude. I'm going to give you 10 practical ways that we can imitate Christ. And you could just multiply this. I think as children we do this just instinctively. I mean, I remember as a child we had a horse that he just threw everybody. And one day my father got a huge piece of wood and he just whacked that horse, just beat that horse with that lumber. He had just thrown me. It didn't occur to me that I shouldn't imitate him. I assumed that was good horsemanship. You know, it never occurred to me that my father would lose his anger. But hopefully with Christ, we can commit ourselves and understand we can imitate Christ and understand he's the perfect model. So Matthew 8, 26 don't fear, but trust in God. They're out in a storm. There arose a great storm. And they came to him and woke him. Save us, Lord, we're perishing. He said to them, why are you afraid? You men of little faith. Why are you terrified? Don't be terrified. God is in control. Resist evil. You go through the whole temptation story. How does Christ resist evil? It's interesting. Both Satan and Christ in that story quote scripture. But Christ counters every satanic use of scripture with a correct usage or an alternative usage. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, serve him only. It is written, do not put the Lord to the test. So resist evil through the word of God. Oh, and of course, the, you know, the huge thing, what is Jesus about relieving oppression his whole life? He went through Galilee, Matthew 4, 23, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel and healing every disease and sickness among the people. We have the capacity to help people, to relieve the oppressed. Be humble. This is Philippians. He existed in the form of God, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. If even Christ the Lord did this, how much more should we do it? Seek holiness, 1 Peter 1.15, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be your holy yourselves. Here is almost the repetition of the Levitical command. And of course, the big one here, and this one we, we don't like to hear, but we're to expect suffering, right? For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Follow in his steps. When we're most closely following Christ's footsteps, guess what's going to happen to us? Live for sacrificial love. This is how we know what love is. Christ Jesus laid down his life for us, and we then ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We are to live a life of, we're to be living sacrifices. Associate with outcasts. Jesus was always hanging out with the wrong people. And we're not to be afraid to, to do that. 
He had dinner with tax collectors, sinners, and there were many from them, it says in Mark, that followed him from among these. Forgive. This is Jesus' final words on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I think sometimes we need to follow Jesus in a willingness to forgive people, understanding they are subject to blindness and ignorance. And my last one here, number 10, follow in hope. This is 1 Peter. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son, there's the imitation, and believes in him, I think faith is itself a kind of faith of Christ, imitation of Christ, in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Follow Christ in hope. Imitate Christ, knowing the outcome. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media you would like to know more about forging plowshares would like to contact us with questions want to ask about how you can get involved or for more information about how you can support this ministry please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org